This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. We understand many of our listeners may not agree with all of our viewpoints. However, we hope you can bear with us in order to hear unadulterated true crime cases. We are not licensed therapists, nor are we able to give legal advice by any means. Our show notes will provide all of our source material included for each episode. Now Now let's get get weird. Welcome back to another episode of All the Sins Worldwide. We're here! (laughs) (laughs) Um, We made it through last week, which was the murder of Sylvia Lakins. Yes. And that was horrendous. That has been a case that has haunted me for a long time. Um, So thank you for covering that. Because that would have sucked for me to have to do myself so thank you (laughs) i did it so you didn't have to thanks (laughs) this week is gonna be a heavy hitter as well so i'm just gonna jump right into it this is gonna be a long one so we might as well just strap in so this case i have been dying to cover ever since i started this podcasting journey and i'm so excited that i'm finally covering it and i'll tell you why it's definitely not because of israel keys oh shit it is because this type of serial serial killer terrifies me. He's one of the scariest people out there, and nobody that I have talked to knows who he is. And that just is, it's insane to me. I want to start off by warning everybody that this episode will cover animal cruelty, murder, rape, and suicide. So if these are triggers for you, Uh, Maybe skip this episode or fast forward those parts, Um, but this is a really good case. Uh, And I'm not saying that because of Israel Keys, it's because of everything that he stands for Mm -hmm. as a criminal and as a murderer. So Israel Keys is dubbed as the cross-country serial killer, and we're going to get into why he is called that. And my sources are from biography.com, Wikipedia, The Brig, and the Federal Bureau of Investigation, and all that's interesting. Let me give you a quick rundown on what kind of serial killer Israel Keys was. He typically traveled to different locations, and Here's what scares me. He chose victims just by opportunity rather than having a preferred victim type. That means that anyone is fair game to him. Just has to be the wrong place in the wrong time. Because usually serial killers have some kind of MO, but this guy is just like, I'm just going to go around wherever right. and just do this to whoever I want right? just for just for the hell of it. Right, like... Uh, John Wayne Gacy, he liked younger boys to um, young men. Mm -hmm. Um, That was his type. Um, Ted Bundy, he was, he liked the brunettes. Mm -hmm. He liked the college girls. Uh, So there were links in cases. Yeah. On top of being a serial killer, he robbed banks and burglarized homes to financially support himself. So he just did not care about anything. If he wanted to do something, he did that with no regard. Oh, God. 
And at the end, law enforcement were left with more questions and answers about his crimes. That tends to happen quite often with cases. Yes. Like, like, they have no idea how to answer anything. Like, they're so stumped. They're like, what is this person's reasoning for this? What happened in his past that caused this? What is he dealing with now that caused this? You know, like, there's so many unanswered questions that people have with this kind of stuff. And I think it's because a normal person can't relate to how this type of person functions. Mm-hmm. Like, it's not in us to comprehend more study it. God knows I can't comprehend it. No. Now let's jump back to his early years to give you some background. Israel Keys was born in Cove, Utah on January 7th, 1978. He's the second of 10 children born to Heidi and John Keyes. His parents were a little out there as well. Together, they believed that there was no need for government interference, public schools, or modern medicine. Hmm. So then what is there a need for? (laughs) That's what I want to know. Right. When Israel was a toddler, his family left Utah for Colville, Washington. They wanted to isolate themselves and move to the woods. He grew up without heat or electricity. Just totally went off the grid. Right. Like, I know if I wasn't, if I was living without heat, I would die. Right. I would literally die. Yeah. At this point, his parents left the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and became fundamentalist Christians and joined a white supremacist church. And for fundamentalist Christians, their religious views are based off of emphasizing biblical literalism. In other words, they take every word for its exact meaning without room for interpretation. Oh, God. Yep. Like, just thinking back to, like, the like the Catholic Bible, like, if it was the same sort of thing, like, taking every single word and phrase seriously, yeah. that would be a lot of fucked up shit happening. We would still have slaves. Mm-hmm. We, they could, men could have multiple wives. We'd still have animal sacrifices. Yep, exactly. So, I mean get with the times. <laughs> the Keyes family were also known as known associates of the Kehoe family. And why is this relevant? The sons of the Kehoe family, Chevy and Cheyenne, were members of the Aryan People's Republic and were incarcerated for a series of hate crime fuel attacks and murders, including the murder of a family of three in Arkansas. Mm-hmm. The Kehoe family life of crimes will be covered on a different episode as they too were evil. Oh God. So things were going downhill in this family dramatically. Again, in the late 1990s, the family relocated to Maupin, I think that's how you say it, Maupin, Oregon. But wait, they moved again, all the way from Oregon to settling to an Amish community in Maine. So they literally went from one end of the country to the other. While In the family home, Israel was known for breaking and entering into neighbors' homes. He would steal guns in order to do what he loved to do, and that was hunting. He stated that he would pursue anything with a heartbeat. Oh, shit. Unfortunately, he showed one of the serial killer indicators as a child. He tortured animals. I know, I hate that. He was quoted saying... I've known since I was 14 that there were things that I 
thought were normal and that were okay than nobody else seemed to think were normal and okay, end quote. So at least he recognized how fucked up he was, but he just didn't do anything. He doesn't care. One day when he was a teenager, he told his family he no longer shared their faith. So his father decided to cut ties with him completely, which doesn't make sense to me. And in my mind, if someone believes in the concept of God and everything God stands for, as represented in the Bible, God doesn't turn his back on anyone, even the lost. And if his father considered Israel lost, he deserted him. Mm-hmm. And they, the Catholic Bible says that those who are lost, like that's who God seeks out the most. Yeah. Right. They, it's obviously you want to keep your, your sheep or mm-hmm. whatever the, the congregation, but if somebody's is straying away, if somebody's questioning, you would think that you would want to focus in on them. Mm-hmm. So that doesn't make sense to me. I don't know why some people take this approach of just turning your back or, um, shunning them or, you know, just like not being a part of the family anymore. Yeah. Like act of true love is honestly just being there despite the troubles that somebody's going through, despite the bad things that are happening, just always being there, especially for a parent. Yeah. Like the parent child relationship. However, his mother did not abandon him and they remained close. He decided to join the army in July of 1998, which is another thing that makes me scared is that these types of people, psychopaths join the military for their own personal sick desires. Mm -hmm. And that is to kill. Yep, and that's exactly what Jeffrey Dahmer did. He did well as a soldier, which was surprising to me, uh, spending time in Egypt at Fort Hood in Texas and Fort Lewis in Washington. In 2000, Israel became involved with a woman who lived on the Makah Reservation in Washington, but that was short-lived. In July of 2001, he was honorably discharged and then moved in with his mother and daughter on the Macaw Reservation. But then five years later, in 2007, he moved to Alaska to live with a nurse practitioner he'd been dating. All All over the place. Just jumping around everywhere. Yeah. And it was because of a DUI that he left the army, and it was surprising that he had no other run-ins with the law during active duty. So it was just like he was normal, or maybe nothing was reported. Mm-hmm. As I mentioned before, Israel targeted victims who happened to cross his path rather than sticking to his specific profile. So you can imagine how frustrating this was for investigators, as it would be hard to pinpoint his murders directly to him without any personal or even distant ties. Mm -hmm. So what would he do exactly? Well, he would lurk in parks, cemeteries, or campgrounds, scoping out victims, basically. Mm -hmm. And he wouldn't always kill in his living radius. So that was hard. He would go like to a different state, to a different city. So it wasn't traceable. Oh, God. He had a history of trips that covered a lot of ground in the United States, meaning he had many opportunities to seek out victims. As if this guy wasn't already a threat, not only was his attacks random, but he was at the same time actually meticulously planned out. So again, very terrifying. He was an unorganized, disorganized serial killer. Mm -hmm. Israel's 
serial killing incorporated detail planning. This is what gets me. He crisscrossed the country to hide murder kits, which consisted of guns, ammunition, and chemicals for the destruction of bodies. I've heard about that. Yep. Like, Actual things, and they found them. They did find them? Yep. Oh, great. This means that he was... If he was in a murder mood and he was in a state that he stashed one of his murder kits, he would go on his own kind of sick hunt. Oh my god. Many of these sick fucks do the same things as Israel Keys. He studied the work of FBI profilers and learned about other serial killers like Ted Bundy. <laughs> on another note, Israel was fitted with a gastric band at a plastic surgery clinic in Mexico, and it has been speculated that he did this to become a better killer. How exactly would that make him become a better killer? Let me tell you, girl. <laughs> so apparently a lap band could mean he wouldn't get hungry as often, meaning he wouldn't have to worry so much about basic necessities in the name of murder. So he wouldn't have to eat as much. What the hell? Right. So if he could manage not sleeping as much, he would just be the ultimate terrifier. Sounds to me like killing is just like the number one thing on his brain 24-7. Like, that, that's so fucked up to me. Like, mm -hmm. It gets worse, though. Oh, my God. He is, was also suspected to have changed his fingerprints and removed body hair to lessen the chances of leaving evidence behind. So jeez. Oh, you could do that by burning your fingertips and sometimes... People do that on accident, but people like this do it on purpose. He was truly an evil genius. He studied, he planned, he was spontaneous. He fit no mold, no pattern. He was terrifying. And when he talked about his crimes, he became physically excited. The way his body language would become while reliving his grotesque crimes was disgusting. He bobbed his knees and rubbed himself against his chair so hard he scraped a layer of the wood clean off. Oh my god. And it wasn't just happiness, he would become sexually excited. Oh, Jesus. So when did he start his criminal journey besides being an animal abuser and thief? Well, apparently the planned, he planned his first attack in Oregon in 1997 or 1998. It wasn't too specific. So his early 20s, he abducted a teenage girl, then raped her. He, of course, planned on killing her once he was done violating her, but somehow this angel was able to convince him to let her leave. He stated, I wasn't violent en enough. I made up my mind I was never going to let that happen again, end quote. Oh my God. He literally told himself never to be a good person again. What the actual fuck? Mm-hmm. On June 2011, he hopped on a plane to Seattle and then on another to Chicago. He was going to visit his brothers in Maine. On the way, he stopped in Indiana for a couple of days, then at an old farmhouse he owned in upstate New York, then on to Burlington before reaching his final destination. What do you think he could be doing? Oh, Jesus. That night in Burlington, he waited until the sun went down, then left his hotel on foot. He carried a backpack of supplies some brought from home, but also went to one of his stashed away murder kits and unearthed it. 
He was dressed head to toe in black. Strapped to his head was a headlamp turned off. His cell phone was also, he took the battery out and he found himself looking at the house at 8 Colbert Street. His years of experience in construction told him this was a simple ranch home he ended up honing in on, which belonged to Bill and Lorraine Courier. He crept around, found the phone line, and cut it. Like, you have no way, like, no way to get a hold of anybody. The fact that people think like this, people think like this, is, I, I, this is why this case really fucks with me. So he noticed that there was no alarm system. There was an above ground pool and a barbecue in the backyard. No toys or floaties, no sign of children or pets. The couple was selected at random as they fit Israel's criteria of having no no children, no dog, and a house with an attached garage. Doesn't that, wouldn't that technically constitute some sort of MO then? Maybe. The the first initial rape, though, that came out of nowhere. And then the MO for people definitely is not a thing. Mm -hmm. But location, yeah. Okay. He proceeded in through the attached garage and after rifling through the green Saturn sedan parked inside, found himself in the kitchen. He surprised and attacked them in about six seconds. Oh, shit. He subdued them and then transported the pair to an abandoned farmhouse. He forced Lorraine to watch him murder her own husband. Afterwards, he turned his sights to Lorraine. She witnessed the murder of her beloved husband and then raped her before being murdered. Oh my God. A cruel end for two good people. Jesus. On February 1st, 2012, Israel made his way to Anchorage, Alaska. He noticed a barista at Common Ground's coffee stand downtown by the name of Samantha Cohen working. Uh, He approached the stand to order a coffee while wearing a ski mask. Israel pulled out a gun, demanded money, but then forced himself into the coffee stand. He tied her up with zip ties. He then forced her in his Ford Focus. Samantha tried her hardest to escape, but unfortunately she couldn't. He drove her around with her tied up endlessly and then told her not to worry because he was just wanting to use her for a ransom. This gave Samantha some hope, which was sick. For real. And the fact that he drove her around, you know, hours and hours is like, you're just mentally torturing her. Like, she mm-hmm. had no idea what was coming to her. He even drove back to her coffee stand to retrieve her phone. He then used it to send a fake text to her boyfriend who was due to pick her up after her shift. The text read, hey, I'm spending a couple of days with friends. Let my dad know. End quote. And then took action on his plan as he took Samantha to his property where he tied her up in a shed. He turned his radio up so no one could hear her screams and pleas for help. He demanded to know her address during the whole ordeal. Think about this. He attacked her and while doing so, he forced her to give the address of her own home. Israel made his way to retrieve her ATM card from her boyfriend's truck and while stealing the debit card, He was confronted by Samantha's boyfriend, who was already on edge after discovering she was not at work and when he went to pick her up after her shift. Oh, damn. 
Plus, the text that was sent to him by Israel didn't sound anything like Samantha. So his red flags were just, you know, flying through the everywhere. Yeah. Thinking he was a random burglar attempting to break into his car, Samantha's boyfriend ran to get help while Israel fled. So he literally came face to face with Israel, who took his girlfriend. So close. Israel fled back to his property and this turd sandwich decided to relax himself with a glass of wine as he returned to his shed and raped a sobbing Samantha. Oh my god. He then strangled her to death. He packed for a pre-planned cruise, New Orleans, woke up his daughter for school, and left for the airport like nothing had happened. He literally raped, murdered, and dismembered a young girl in his backyard while his daughter was just feet away in their home. Oh my god. Like, can you imagine if that his daughter would have seen any of that? Fully traumatizing her. Like, if anybody would have seen any of that, would totally just put somebody in in a state, but... Like, that will never make sense to me how, obviously, how serial killers do what they do, period. Mm. But when they do it, when they have their own children. Especially a daughter. Yeah. You're doing this to another person's daughter. Mm-hmm. And then you go and look at your your own daughter, tuck her into bed as if nothing has happened. Mm-hmm. He left with Samantha's cell phone, ATM card, and her pen. He returned to Anchorage on February 17th of 2012 and prepared a ransom note. He felt that he needed to create a more, he needed to create more chaos and staged a ransom demand of 30,000. But this nasty monster already knew she was murdered. She was already dead and he was going to try to extract money from her, you know, family who was not knowing what happened to her. He decided to make the ransom very real, and so he removed Samantha's body from the cupboard. So what did he do? He takes her body, yes, her dead body, and this is before he dismembered it, so I'm sorry that I gave that away. Uh, He sewed fishing lines to her eyes to hold them open, and he made her hold a newspaper with the current date as if she was still alive. Oh my god, like this just sounds like stuff you would see in a typical horror movie like and if that's not bad enough he applied makeup to samantha's face frozen and lifeless he then took a polaroid of her and when i tell you that the picture he took of samantha is chilling it's an understatement like i've seen the picture you've seen that picture it's out there oh my god and it looks like she's alive does it really it does oh jeez. Weeks later, he dismembered her body and dropped the pieces into a lake north of Anchorage. He brought the ransom note and the photograph of Samantha staged to look alive in a park under a memorial flyer of a dog named Albert before using Samantha's phone to text her boyfriend the following. Connor Park sign under pick of Albert, ain't she pretty? End quote. Mm. Her family, of course, hoping Samantha was still alive, deposited money into her account that was raised by the community in order to bring her home safe. So they just have like a this sense of hope that their daughter is still alive and Israel's just toying with them. Exactly. Once he saw the deposit hit, he used Samantha's ATM card to withdraw funds in Alaska, then continued these transactions while traveling in Mex- New Mexico, Arizona, and Texas. He disguised his appearance 
but a security camera recorded an image of his rental car in Arizona. In March of 2012 in Texas, he was pulled over for a traffic stop where authorities found tie-stained bills from a bank robbery, a ski mask, a gun, and Samantha's phone and debit card. So he wasn't done, you know, like they found all of that in his car. So he was in active pursuit of potentially another victim. I'm glad that they found it and they saw all that. Right. Hopefully they started to put two and two together. Like this guy's a fucking animal. Like he cannot be running around anymore. Right. A search of his car revealed among other incriminating items, Samantha's license, you know, her, as I mentioned before, her phone, her debit card, And a month later, on April 2nd, 2012, members of the FBI dive team worked with Anchorage police and Alaska state troopers to search the Matanuska Lake and Anchorage for Samantha Cohen's body. He, they found it, obviously. Okay. They recovered it. He was indicted on April 18th in connection with her murder. Now let's talk about possible victims that were not confirmed. Per his account, he killed four people in Washington state, a couple sometime between 2001 and 2005, and two separate victims in 2005 and 2006. Nobody was confirmed to be the victims. However, that doesn't mean that they aren't out there unsolved to this day. He also stated that in 2009, he murdered someone in the East Coast, then left the body in New York. Of course, the FBI was like, okay, now we're getting involved because this is a different type of beast. Mm -hmm. The FBI was relatively confident that this victim he mentioned on the East Coast was Deborah Feldman, a New Jersey resident who went missing in April 2009. It doesn't elaborate in the sources that I went through, why they thought that it was Deborah, but that's straight from the FBI. A girl named Julie Harris was who disappeared in Colville, Washington in 1996. This part was really sad and just broke my heart. So her prosthetic feet were found a month after she vanished and her mm-hmm. and her remains were discovered a year later in 1997. Mm-hmm. Right. He was in the area when Julie Harris went missing, but denied any involvement. So do we believe him? I don't know. In 2006, in Washington State, 56-year-old Mary Cooper and her 27-year-old daughter, Susanna Stodden, were out hiking, and then they were found shot to death. Israel Keys denied this double murder as well, but they looked at him for it. With how smart he was... He sure was dumb for not thinking that using a dead woman's ATM card wouldn't sound any alarm bells. For real. Shortly before being captured, Israel spent time with his mother and some siblings. His father had just died years earlier in Texas. During this visit, his sister tried to get him to reconsider his atheism. And do you want to hear another thing that is chilling that (laughs) apparently this case just keeps getting more and more chilling. I don't know. A pastor was present at the time he was visiting his family and when talking with Israel, he noted that Israel answered his sister by stating, you don't know the depths of darkness that I've gone to. You don't know what I've done. End quote. 
which is some Darth Vader shit. Like, what? Who I mean, says that? I mean, I have not been able to watch all of Star Wars, and girl, I can get. I'm sorry. I, I can't even watch a movie for 25 minutes without falling asleep, no matter what it is. You're one of those. <laughs> yeah, and my fiance can attest to that. Is he a Star Wars fan? Yeah. Okay, we're best friends. <laughs> <laughs> he was arrested and eventually brought back to Alaska. Investigators basically were like, bitch, you've been caught. And they confronted Israel with the evidence they had trying tying him to Samantha Cohen's disappearance. He confessed to the crime because he knew that they what they had on him. So he mm-hmm. was just like throwing up his hands. Yeah, he couldn't hide anymore. No. This murder conflicted with his usual careful planning, but he told law enforcement that he'd been feeling out of control and noted, back when I was smart, I would let them come to me, end quote. Like, everything he says is, like, dripping with terror for me. Like, Mm -hmm. everything he says is just gross and nasty and evil. Yeah, just, like, every single quote that you've read, just, like, the nausea just builds more and more and more, and it's kind of at the point where it's like, okay, how long is it going to be till I lose my dinner? You know what I mean? Yeah, and he's had girlfriends, could you and how did they not even know anything? I know. like, I, And I feel like a lot of serial killers that are this depraved, like like we mentioned before, uh, John Wayne Gacy, Ted Bundy, like nobody suspected. Mm-hmm. Nobody knew until it was too late. And that's always the saddest part about it. Right. Well, one of the saddest parts about it. Right. Before divulging into his life of crime, he wanted to make a few things clear. One of his conditions was that he didn't want his daughter to find out about his crimes. He stated, I want my kid to have a chance to grow up. You know, she's in a safe place now. She's not going to see any of this. I want her to have a chance to grow up and not have all of this hanging over her head, end quote. It's going to come back to her no matter what. Like, she's going to know about it. Right. And I can't wrap my, my brain around the fact that a person to this degree of vile can hold room in his mind and in his heart to hold the form of or love, and I say that loosely, towards people like his daughter, his siblings, his mother, and have romantic partners like we just talked about. Mm-hmm. Like, how? Talking to investigators, Israel told them that he killed less than a dozen people. He even told them of the plans he was creating to further his criminal career. Hmm. Israel said he'd next intended to leave Alaska and travel through storm-ravaged regions to find new victims while working as as a contractor. He dreamed of later building a house where he could imprison his victims, and I am so glad he got caught when he did because he was obviously planning on escalating but I do wish he was caught much sooner, of course. Oh, yeah, for sure. But he was going to build a murder house. That's like some American Horror Story shit. Yeah. He obviously confessed and was incarcerated, and he expressed his desire for a quick execution date, saying he dreaded being behind bars for years, and he didn't want his mother or daughter to suffer because of his crimes. You should have fucking thought of that before you were evil and disgusting. For real. Israel offered details about the courier killings as a bargaining chip with law enforcement. And while in jail, he used his own blood to draw 12 skulls, which may represent 11 victims and himself. Oh, that's really fucked up. 
And there are pictures of these drawings too. Mm. Or I never thought he would do this because I didn't think he was a coward, but he committed suicide using a razor blade. So that's, he doesn't even get the true justice. Like, nope. There's, there's no true justice nope. here. Nope. Like that, that seriously like makes my blood boil. Yep. Like I'm getting pissed off right now. Like, <laughs> he literally took yeah. the pussy ass way out. He really did. Right? Yeah. Yes. So trigger warning, he slit his wrists and also strangled himself with a sheet while laying in bed. For one last time, he took matters into his own hands before he faced a lengthy trial. Remember, he was only indicted and he was being held on murder charges, so he wasn't even brought to justice, not even remotely. His body was not discovered until the morning of December 2nd, which is surprising to me that he was able to kill himself and not be discovered right away. Mm-hmm. Seems a little fishy to me, okay. as if he was permitted to do so. Yeah, fishy is to fish. Yeah. His mother, four sisters, and three brother in law brothers-in-law were the sole attendees at his funeral on December 8th, 2012. In 2020, an FBI agent told 48 Hours, we believe that 11 is a total number of victims, yet only three of his victims have been definitively identified, end quote. He died with his secrets, leaving cases open and questions unanswered. To this day, FBI agents work with law enforcement around the country to link him to open cases. Special Agent Jolene Goyden stated, if we have a missing person identified in a particular area, we work closely with the local police department to either connect the person to Israel Keys or not, we have his DNA, end quote. If you are interested in a deeper dive on Israel Keys, there is a really great book out there by Maureen Callahan called American Predator. Also, I have the FBI link in the show notes that have an actual video of the interview they conducted with Israel on May 24th and May 29th and July 26th of 2012, if anyone is interested in watching. Also on the FBI website, it was it has a breakdown of a timeline of Israel's known travels and activity from 1997 through 2012. And I highly suggest that anyone who has a deceased or missing family or friend during that time frame, take a look to see if he was in your area during that time, because I mean, there could be a link. Yeah. And if there's that opportunity to potentially connect some missing pieces, but like, for God's sakes, take it. Yes. That is the case of Israel Keys, but more importantly, the case of Bill and Lorraine Courier and Samantha Cohen and the the rape victim that is unnamed and the potential other people affected by Israel Keys, including his daughter and his family. Like I've I've heard a lot of screw up screwed up cases and this one's gotta be very, very high on the list. Oh my god. I know. I know. And I'm just like I hate to think that there could be other people like this. Mm-hmm. Or worse. Or wor- yes, or worse. But yeah, that is a wrap on Israel Keys, dubbed as the cross country serial killer. I hope that we didn't scare you off. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and we hope that you keep listening.
Yes, we have a lot more to give y'all. We love you. Yep. Bye. Bye. All the Sins Worldwide was written, recorded, edited, and produced by our co-hosts and creators, Jess and Mims. We truly want to thank our listeners, collaborators, friends, and family that continuously support us and for all the love we receive. If you enjoy our show, please give us a glowing review and rating on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Also, follow us on Facebook and Instagram to see what we're up to. And email us your sinner tales at allthesinsworldwide at gmail.com. Episodes of All the Sins Worldwide are available wherever you listen to podcasts. So make sure to subscribe and like us on your favorite streaming platform.